2: So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
0: You're listening to TV's top five, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as usual by the great Dan Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. Hi, Dan. How's it going?
1: Oh, just quiet week in Hollywood, Leslie. How about you?
0: Oh, same. Hard same. Hard same. So... <laughs> Um, we've got a big episode to get to. Uh, we've got a special guest this week joining us for what I believe is the third time is FX CEO John Landgraf. As we go inside the peak TV numbers that were revealed this week. Plus, we're going to take a look at what exactly the hell is happening over at HBO Max. Like, it's literally clouding my entire timeline. It's My timeline is HBO Max and Vince Gully. And yes, I do have a lot to say about the loss of Vince Gully. So we're going to kind of do things in a little different order Uh, This week, the last topic will be me talking about Vin and really trying not to cry. So if you're not a baseball fan and you don't want to hear it, you're not going to miss anything if you just listen to our top four topics.
1: And we are also (laughs) recording this podcast in all sorts of little strange bits and pieces. So it's entirely possible that that. Eagle-eared listeners may notice chronology being off in some conversations here or there. Like, why was John Landgraf not talking about what happened on Thursday with HBO Max? Well, the answer is because we talked to him on Wednesday. And also, as of the time we're recording this, we don't know what happened with HBO Max. But we will in, like, five minutes if you listen to segment two. So, anyway, too much of how the sausage is made. This podcast could be chaotic, but it would be very much reflective of the current state of Hollywood.
0: Well said, my friend. Well said. Well, what do you say we get kick things off with headlines?
1: Bring it on. Number
0: one. Leading off, Ellen Pompeo will reduce her role in the upcoming 19th season of Grey's Anatomy as she has signed signed on to star and executive produce an untitled orphan limited series for Hulu, as she has continued to express interest in working outside of the ABC medical drama. As for the show's future, well, no decisions have been made about a final season. Sources say that's been kind of the mandate for the last couple of seasons. You you go, you start the season, you get a good storyline going, and then kind of at the point of the writer's room where they need to write the finale, that's where they go in and talk to ABC and say, well, should we do this as a final season? Is this a final season? I kind of need to know right now, and then... ABC and the studio execs go to Ellen and Ellen plays hardball and gets more money and yada, yada, yada. And then there's another season. And that's kind of been the way that that things have shaped, uh, have have played out for the past couple of years. But anyway, so, yes, Pompeo has used her clout for leverage and to score a rich payday of of late. Sources say that, that Pompeo will only appear in eight of the anticipated 22 episodes of season 19 of Grey's Anatomy. And of course, Grey's creator Shonda Rhimes has said more times than I can count that there is no Grey's Anatomy without Meredith Grey. So, yeah, there you go. And as for how they're going to offset it, well, there's been an impressive new string of cast additions as a new group of interns populates the hospital, as tends to happen in Grey's Anatomy history.
1: And as always, in such cases, my Twitter feed is a comfortable mixture of people saying never end... (laughs) Yes. No, it's a mix of it's a mix of that's still on and never end Grey's Anatomy. So it will be when that show finally ends, it will be a very intriguing mixture of rending of garments and people being utterly pointlessly irate that a TV show one of seven billion that have no impact on most people is no longer going to exist. And so some people will be very, very irate that I don't know about everything. People are irate about absolutely everything.
0: Yeah. And it's still and it's still a ratings hit in it's 18th season. It's it still airs in more than 200 territories around the world It is a cash cow. Pompeo is, has made a lot of money. Shonda has made a lot of money. Disney has made even more money. So Netflix is obviously, you know, a big part of that deal, too, because you've got so many new fans coming into it because it is streaming on Netflix still. And that has to be a profitable dis- uh, deal for Disney as well.
1: No, it is an, incre- it, is an incre- it is an incredibly significant show, and there is no question about that. And as the number of seasons keeps going up, it becomes more and more kind of clear how how when we step back and look at the legacy of Grey's Anatomy, it is going to be one of one of the more important shows in TV history that people don't look at as being one of the most important shows in TV history. But, you know. We'll get a perspective on it if it ever actually ends.
0: Yeah, and I really <laughs> hope I'm not still doing this when Grey's Anatomy eventually ends because that's going to be a hard day and a hard l- season to cover, et cetera. So,
1: <laughs> anyway, so as you said, uh, part of why um, Ellen Pompeo is stepping back is because she's doing a Hulu limited series. Speaking of Hulu, uh, news broke as part of the virtual uh, TCA press tour that. Uh, Hulu or FX or FX on Hulu or Hulu on FX or God only knows what, uh, has added the Elizabeth Moss thriller, The Veil to upcoming offerings, also coming out as part of the TCA. Avalanche of news is news that Devil in the White City is continuing to move forward. And now it actually has a star and not a small star. It is Keanu Reeves who will be top lining the series, which comes from Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio. So lots of rather large names. Everybody knew that you really and truly know who Leonardo DiCaprio and Martin Scorsese are.
0: I mean, I went to junior high with Leo DiCaprio. I used to sell him baseball cards. (laughs)
1: <laughs> and Martin Scorsese is that guy who once said something bad about Marvel movies and uh, Twitter hasn't let him forgive it, forget it. So, you know, whatever. <laughs> anyway, continuing along, Hulu has picked up The Other Black Girl based on the book of the same name with Freeform and Onyx Collective president Tara Duncan set to executive produce the drama.
0: Yeah, lots going on over at Hulu. We had, you know, obviously we had an executive session with John Landgraf as part of the virtual press tour, and he talked a lot about the value of having Hulu as a home for all the FX originals. We're going to get into all that, too, in um, our third segment this week when uh, Dan and I are joined by John Landgraf and the mayor of television himself. Elsewhere, NBC and Peacock are basically pulling a Dancing with the Stars move. The conglomerate said this week that the long-running NBC soap Days of Our Lives, following a nearly six-decade run on the broadcast network, is moving exclusively to Peacock, effective September 12th with the launch of the fall TV season. NBC is handing off the hour in its schedule to its news division. In a larger sense, this move helps bring more immediacy to Peacock, kind of the same way Dancing with the Stars is going to bring a little bit more of the same, plus family viewers, et cetera, and maybe bring, you know, arc out some demos and expand some viewing habits there. Um, the same way that that uh, Dancing with the Stars is going to do for Disney+. Plus. So, uh, like I said, so... Peacock has stalled in terms of its subscriber numbers. So this is one way to get a very, very loyal audience to come to streaming. And it's also worth noting that Peacock has trained Days of Our Lives viewers to watch on the platform with two limited series featuring a number of fan favorite characters, too. So they laid the groundwork. They did the test. They spent some money to bring some fan favorites back. They recruited the audience to Peacock. And now, guess what? Now that that audience has Peacock, they don't need it on NBC anymore.
1: Definitely interesting the the peacock approach sort of keeping on trying to find what the cleanup hitter in their lineup is going to be or i can't actually at <laughs> or this any point, hitter they may, i was gonna say at this point they may just be looking for a leadoff hitter and then they'll figure out where the next eight people come they're looking for something and whether it is uh <laughs> you know whether the breakout was going to be the olympics or not unclear nope <laughs> Whether it was going to be basically every original series that people have already forgotten about, probably not. So the no, this. Nope. But this, on the other hand, seems like it. It could be another thing because basically all you want to do is you want to get an audience that is legitimately addicted to your programming, and I think that's the fantastic thing about daytime television is that even if it is not as central to the cultural conversation as it was 30 years ago or 40 years ago, and we're down to only the couple existing daytime soaps, the people who watch those shows watch them every single day or catch up with them. Yeah, exactly. Fiercely loyal. And so if you can somehow explain to them how to hop over and watch Peacock, Maybe this will be the thing that. I
0: mean, they've already, like I said, they've already done that, Dan. You know, when you bring back, you know, some of these original fan favorites. I mean, I, I watched Days of our lives in high school. I mean, I remember during the LAUSD teacher strike, we had it felt like months. Maybe it was probably more like two months, where we, we were. It was you either go to go to the campus and you're out playing speed on the playground with a deck of cards, or you're staying home and watching the soaps. And I kind of did both, so. I think I stayed with Days of Our Lives through my first year of college. I was there for the Marlena is Possessed storyline and I loved Bo and Hope and Bo and Billy and all this other stuff. But like that is a really, really loyal audience. And like I said, they figured out how to get them to come to Peacock for those two limited series that were, I guess, were successful. The, I was going to the, say, the first we, one because you, you, they did a second one, but they trained uh, the audience. And that's a, and look, that's a different demo than, than most people, you know, most streaming platforms cater to, to young, younger subscribers, right? That's where, that's the whole point of, of the streaming wars, right? You're trying to meet the audience where they are, which is streaming. Soap operas are not. Targeted to a younger demo. This is a way of expanding Peacock's reach. The same way that Dancing with the Stars is going to do that for Disney Plus. Because that's, first of all, they're going to air it live. So if you want to watch in real time, you got to sign up. You have to actually go to Disney Plus when that's going to air. And that's the same thing. That's, that show age, you know, skews tends to skew a lot older, which is why it's not going to work on broadcast anymore. So you're trying to bring immediacy and new demos to a, st- to streaming platforms because no one's watching on Linear anymore. And the ones that are is an older audience that you need to to retrain. And this is how you're doing it.
1: Continuing along with headlines, over at the CW, the Mark Pedowitz-led network has confirmed that The Flash will officially end with its upcoming ninth season. It will return in 2023 with a shortened 13-episode run. And, yeah, I... <laughs> I checked out on this one a couple of years ago, but on the other hand, it's still again. It's maybe not as significant as as Arrow, uh, because Arrow, of course, started the Arrowverse. Otherwise, it would have been the Flashverse, I suppose. So, and
0: now it's just the DC verse. But honestly, the number of, of shows in that DC verse has really declined, along with the CW's desire to get to reduce its scripted originals.
1: But anyway, yes. So the show was supposed to uh, be ending last year, but strong ratings. And so Warner Brothers Television inked new deals with the cast, including Grant Gustin. But it will now end after its ninth
0: season. And wrapping up headlines, this is a fun one for me. Jason Katims is reuniting with Imagine Television, the production company behind Friday Night Lights for an overall deal. So back in business with the company that helped him put out two of his best shows. And what he said is his best career experiences with both Friday Night Lights and Parenthood, two of my favorite shows. And the new pact, of course, comes after Kadams had a previous deal with Apple that has expired. His next show is the Apple series Dear Edward, which reunites him with Friday Night Lights favorite, Connie Britton. And that is a wrap on headlines for this week. Next up, we're going to get into... What the bleep is going on over at HBO Max?
1: Number two.
0: Up next, what the hell is going on over at Warner Brothers Discovery? Well, the answer, it turns out, if you're on the TV side, not a whole lot right now. Well, we know what's going on now that we've listened to two hours of the Warner Brothers Discovery Q2 earnings report. Oh, my goodness, Dan, that was a lot. But here's what we're going to run down. So... We know this week that Discovery, Warner Brothers Discovery, has thrown out the Batgirl movie, the $90 million Batgirl movie from DC. It's thrown out the Scooby-Doo feature film. Both of those were earmarked as HBO Max originals. And that has obviously paired with everything that's gone on with some of the linear networks and some of the other cancellations that we've talked about recently, Samantha B, the implosion of content at TBS and TNT. You mean the,
1: the T-nets?
0: I did it on purpose, Dan. I didn't say T-nets
1: on purpose. Too late. You mean the T-nets. Continue the, the as you are. The Turner but
0: it's, it's not owned by Turner. We, we're going <laughs> to make it more confusing. Uh, shout out to Alan Seppenwald for suggesting that. Uh, anyway, but we, so what's happening? Well, not a whole lot. So the biggest takeaway from the earnings report is that, The combined HBO Max and Discovery Plus is going to launch in summer 2023. We don't know how how much it's going to cost. We don't know if one is going to move into the other or or, or vice versa. But let me just, as an aside, take a time out here right now and say, if you see a tweet, even if it's got a little verified check mark next to it and it's from a reporter you don't know or credentials that don't make sense to add up to that or it or it's labeled rumor or speculation, take it with a grain of salt. Don't believe everything you read. Trust reporters that are doing this job on the websites that you know are reliable. Everything that people say on Twitter isn't real. Okay, hey, am I am I subtweeting someone right now? Absolutely. Am I doing it for a reason? 100%. If you are a media reporter like we are, you're Your inbox, your text messages, your signal, all of it has been going berserk this week because of some person that most people in the industry don't know. I certainly didn't know this person tweeting something that was that sounded completely and totally outlandish, and it created a frenzy. It made people fear for their jobs. None of it wound up being true, at at least as of press time, as we record this after this earnings report. So anyway, so back to what we do know. So, Dan, you listen, you slogged along and listened to to all this uh, (laughs) financial jargon and everything else, but. What were your big takeaways? Because I'm I'm talking an awful lot here.
1: Eh, not not so much just yet. And I think people are definitely interested because there is absolutely no question that the past couple days have been more out of control on the rumor mill front than any days in my experience in this business. It's it's been out of control. And and the thing is, I, I think you're probably Leaving aside the original source of any of the rumors, because there was a lot of rumor mongering that came really and truly from a single source. I want to leave that completely and totally aside. That, of course, then spiraled and it became dozens of people speculating on dozens of things. With dozens HBO of...
0: Max is going to go away. No, it's not. It, but, it's not. But The
1: thing is, OK, so no, it's not going to go away, but we don't really exactly know what it's going to be as of next summer. And I think that that is kind yeah, as of, of
0: next summer.
1: Yeah. It's, so like Also, it, the it,
0: same can be said for discovery plus, we don't know what's going to happen. What we do know. And this came at the very, very end of that earning call. I totally interrupted you, Dan. I'm sorry. Is that it will, this new combined service will cost more than discovery plus. That's all we know so far and launch in the summer in in, in the U S they gave
1: certain additional details sort of like like there was the additional there was the detail that the discovery plus system or infrastructure has been more stable and so whatever's going to be happening probably will move over to the discovery plus infrastructure so i'm sure that some people are going to interpret that as being okay everything's going to migrate over to discovery plus But as of last night, there was rampant speculation everywhere that basically a dozen HBO Max originals, basically every single HBO Max show that you know of was being canceled. And, and, and at least as of now, that is the thing. That is the thing we have to emphasize on every single thing we say. As of now, that is not the case. So if you Mm -hmm. are
0: Will they possibly change the phrasing of of what defines an HBO show, something that airs exclusively or first on the HBO linear channel versus what an HBO Max original is? Is that a line that needs to be differentiated? That's a big question that we'll have going forward. Will Hacks start to be referred to as an HBO original? Look, we've talked about this dating back to the Emmys last year when they first decided to group these, you know, the the nominations by conglomerate based based on how they were submitted. And now they they stop grouping it all together because they don't even want to get into these muddy waters. So, you know, that's a conversation that's going to obviously be evolving as this service will. But the one one of my big takeaways from this whole presentation and from everything that's been going on over the last couple of weeks is when you look at at across the Warner Media portfolio, a lot of those divisions have been massively mismanaged. You want to start at the top? Great. DC. Okay, you're going to make a, a an 80 million dollar movie that turns into a 90 million dollar movie with with pandemic costs and everything else and the quality is not there and it's you're going to make you're going to spend that kind of money for a movie that is going to be exclusively for a streaming service. David Zaslav is sitting here saying that is not a model that makes sense. If you're going to invest Millions of dollars, you're going to do it theatrically so you can get the return on that. And then you're going to make that's going to turn into an event when it goes out on PVOD. And then it's going to be an, another event when it hits SVOD. That makes complete and total sense. But when you look at a lot from from when you just take a step back and you look at what the, the this company, this combined company is doing, it's sitting here and saying, look, listen, is Gordita Chronicles a, gr- a good show? arguably, without a doubt. We heard you review, Dan. You loved it. The internet says it's good. You look at the score on Rotten Tomatoes. Who knows how many people are watching it? It doesn't matter how many people watched it. What matters is the larger strategy is what they're saying is kids and family content does not perform well on HBO Max unless you're a a pre-existing brand. Well, guess what Warner Brothers Discovery owns? Looney Tunes. Scooby Doo, yes, they shelved the big, you know, animated feature that was going to be made for streaming. That that those are opportunities to take financial tax write offs to recoup that money. That's why you're not going to see the the Batgirl movie stream anywhere else. Because if it does, if they say, you know what, we're just going to re- release it anyway and not pay to market it, they're not going to get the reimbursed for the money that they spent on it. They want the money. They don't care about the product in this case. In a larger sense, Zaslav, one of the things that he said too is, we want to release quality products. Quality matters. So they're gonna, they're right now they've got a lot of executives that are working toward a ten-year plan for DC, similar to what Disney and Marvel have done under Kevin Feige. Still searching for an exec to lead DC. So what he's trying to do is clean the clean up the mess. You're merging two companies that really go very very well together. So there's obviously going to be some redundancies to get rid of. We know kids and family doesn't work. Sorry, Gordita Chronicles. Sony, good luck selling it. If you, if someone wants to buy it and wants streaming rights to season one, they can have it. We want the show to succeed. It's just not right for us, right? It's like, do you need to pay an HBO Max unscripted team when you're literally getting an unscripted team from the world's leader in the in the genre at Discovery? When you've got thousands of hours, do you need to keep making expensive unscripted shows that cost millions and millions of dollars when Discovery is doing it for half the price? Right. And now you're going to be getting, you know, we saw the news this morning or Thursday morning that CNN content is going to go over to uh, to Discovery Plus and a lot of the Magnolia Network content is going to come to HBO Max. This is exactly what we kind of talked about in headlines or with Days of Our Lives, right? You're training viewers to come to a new service to watch these things you're expanding a demo you know so Dan, i'm 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 not this
1: yeah i you're you're more you're more accepting of the of the zasloff line unfortunately than i am and that's just fine i Uh, I don't know if
0: i'm accepting it i i I kind of approach it everything from a logic base you know and and it makes sense
1: but me. logic comes with its own biases and there is to me there becomes a really really frustrating thing when you say on one hand that quality is the thing that you're going for and that you know that is the that is a primary thing it's very clearly not the primary thing in fact really i think it's an utter lie but i i just i can't help but look at the things that they have cut and the frequency with which the things they have cut are the things that are fronted by people of color and uh, by women and by women of color. And the reality is, if you are basing success around a traditional pre-existing model, it is always going to be more acceptable and On the very surface and in the short term, financially viable to cater to the most middle of the road taste and middle of the road demographics. And from the way that people like David Zaslav understand it, that is always going to be white men followed by white women. And so you look at the shows they have canceled and there is just no logic for me wherein you can say, a show like Gordina Chronicles is is a a ridiculous thing to use as an example because you you said I loved it. I liked it. But to me, it's a little show. It cost next
0: to nothing to make, by the way. I think it was less than a million dollars an episode. It couldn't uh, have cost anything to
1: make. And so you're either saying that it's just the, it's the whole problem of either things have to be huge or, I don't know what the other thing is. That was the the whole problem or a problem with uh, with Batgirl is that it basically wasn't expensive enough or cheap enough. So it was kind of stuck in an in-between And what he space. also
0: said was the quality was bad, basically, right? But he, I mean, he's, That's what he's, some of our reporting has said. Sure,
1: he said it. And absolutely, when the story initially broke, the story initially broke in a very, very, very clearly planted story in uh, the New York Post referring to... Basically, referring to test screenings. Fine, whatever. I, you know, like, like if the test screenings had been a little bit higher, would it have suddenly fit in with the, with the business model? It wouldn't have suddenly become part of their
0: new 10 year plan. So it's, it's kind of bullshit to begin with. But and then, but, but at the same time, he's sitting here and saying, from a larger strategy point, spending millions of dollars on streaming first movies is not a good business model. Also, duh. Like (laughs) no shit. So is it unfortunate that that a female-led movie with a Latinx star is the scape is a victim of this? Is it yes? It's absolutely unfortunate. Is it unfortunate that *Gordita Chronicles* is a victim of this strategy change? Yes. The same goes for for Chad. What was that unscripted show that TVS canceled like a week before it was going to air? What was that called? Like the Big D with like someone from one of the Bachelor franchises. That's unfortunate too. But again, this is a business. Yes. Does it think that, that it's hitting diversity and inclusion efforts? 100%. But at the same time, and I'm not defending anyone. I'm just calling it like I see it. You've got to cut $3 billion to start and it'll probably wind up being more. You've got layoffs. You're getting rid of, of redundancies, right? Like the unscripted department is a great example of that. But. You know, you we were talking about this before we started recording, too. It's like everyone wants big franchises, right? Obviously, it it cuts through. How many times did they tout House of the Dragon on this call? It was at least five or six times, you know, plus photos of it, etc. But, you know, he also, you know, Zaslav also said that he wants to broaden out HBO and HBO Max content and that he is going to stand behind that and they're going to continue to get additional financial resources that he's locked up casey bloys for another five years more he hopes he called bloys a unicorn a great compliment for that executive he wants that their their entire programming team is all locked up so originals are not going anywhere contrary to what random tweet person the random person on twitter said you know so he wants big programming he wants more stuff he, he's going to get more content. It's going to be on this big, supersized platform that is going to be managed properly and that is going to have all of their assets in a clear and organized effort. And for someone like me who's sitting here and saying, you know, not even for me, but just in general, the whole goal of the streaming wars is to compete with Netflix, right? What did Netflix want to do? Netflix wanted to be the end all be all one-stop shop. We want kids programming, feature films, expensive movies, animation, You know, scripted comedy, scripted scripted drama, stand-up specials, everything. We want everything. And what the the entire point of Warner Brothers and Discovery coming together is because you're going to have the market leader in Unscripted. You have arguably the market leader in premium content with HBO. Those brands fit perfectly together. And now you're going to say, we've got DC over here. It's been hugely mismanaged. Also, you're spending millions of dollars at for no reason whatsoever to put something on a streaming platform that you're not going to get any money back out of that's not a good use of your money if you've got 90 million dollars go out and make a 10 episode animated game of thrones show that you know will cut through and maybe they'll have some diversity there i don't i don't know you know but yes it's unfortunate you know to your point that this hits in the in the diversity category is that in by design absolutely not is it a sad coincidence one hundred percent, And that's at least from, my, from where it's I It's not
1: sit. by design, but it's by reductive binary thinking. And I think if you, you certainly were getting the, I mean, there was a literal illustration of the reductive binary uh, thinking that they put up on the screen where they put up these two slides where they basically said, yes, women love Discovery Plus and men love HBO Max. And everyone here is sitting, everyone who actually pays attention to this podcast or has paid attention to the industry is going, excuse me, the entire purpose of HBO Max was to develop original programming that was less male-centric than HBO. And if you look at their actual programming, it's less male-centric than HBO. What is the binary that you have decided that you're going to convince people? And the binary becomes man-woman, Discovery, HBO Max. It Eventually, there's no way for it not to become white, everything else that isn't white. And it's the minute that you start thinking like that that... I don't think you're thinking like 2022 anymore. I think you're you're thinking of a of you're absolutely right that there you know that there's a loss of money that they have to make up, of course. And it's billions of dollars, which means you have to lay people off. Of course, that is true because they're a business. They have to make money. And so for sure, but it's a combination of backwards thinking and attempting to be forward thinking but to my mind the forward thinking only goes so far it's the we're going to write the ship okay i i can understand that you can write the ship by thinking that it's 2010 and you can get things back to normal i don't think you can make anything that's going forward based on the way anyone there is thinking i i really don't and obviously the solution to this problem is not releasing batgirl on on hbo max that is not that is kind of a uh, an unfortunate symptom that Twitter latched onto because, of course, they did. And that is and any more or less than Gordita Chronicles is the solution to any particular problem in this situation. On the other hand, acknowledging that small shows that are good shows that target an audience that otherwise wouldn't know your platform existed, you know, is there an advantage to... Making a show. God, I don't know why we keep talking about Gordita Chronicles and yet we do because it's fun to say. But it, you know, it's sort of an example of a small show that you would want to have on because there's an audience that would treasure it. And if there's no value in having that, then. I feel like there's a long-term loss, because you're losing out on the young audience that would watch that show, and that would become an older show, and that would subscribe. But these are things that are only relevant in 2035. And so if you're not worried about 2035, and if you're not worried about 2030, that's entirely fine. And really, what David Zaslav should have done is taken out the names of everybody at Warner Brothers and everybody at DC for the past decade, and named their names and called them all idiots. Because that was the subtext of every single word he said for those two hours was oh my god my predecessors were morons and you know and, and the fact that he was so close in some cases to saying that I feel like there were a couple points where he was right on the edge of saying I can't believe how stupid some of those people were and he came really close with the with the talking about the direct to streaming of, of theatrical right, yeah, stuff that's Jason Kalar yeah. Yeah, and, and you could tell he wanted to tear him to shreds and probably in private conversations has done so and 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 maybe he's right.
0: And of course, maybe right, he's that right. Strategy, That's the other thing. <laughs> that strategy worked. Okay? <laughs> so it worked because of the time and the place that we were in. This is a brand new new street at the time, this is a brand new streaming service that was launching without the friends reunion, which was supposed to be a launch title, that was launching without a lot of key things because of the pandemic, right? So how do you get people to come to a new service when, by the way, Apple just launched. Peacock just launched, you know, there's eight, you're overwhelmed with choices, right? So the easiest thing you can do is, well, you're, you're all sitting at home. No one wants to go out and get COVID in a movie theater. Great. Sign up for our service. Here's, you know, a, a feature film that you would pay to go see in the movies day and, you know, right here on uh, day and date on that. You can watch at home. That worked. It, how many people did it bring it? it you know, they, they've they touted in the past that it brought people to the service, once people have the service, they, they kicked around and, and they stayed and they watched a lot of the, the stuff that you're talking about too. You know, the female skewing stuff that they watched HBO content, right? It's got a great library. I'm not going to argue. You know, we've watched so many movies, uh, you know, on HBO Max, just, just the way that we consume stuff, you know, and it, it's, it was a strategy that worked for the time. Is it a strategy that works going forward when, when a lot of people, despite rising COVID cases are going back to, to the theater and back to work? No, financially it doesn't work. But at at the time, it served its purpose. Does it work going forward? Is it sustainable? Ask Netflix. Look at their look at their financials. And I think that
1: was one of the things that he was trying to emphasize. And I think that's one of probably the most important takeaways. Is kind of, and it's been the takeaway of everything that Netflix has been going through for a while now. Is and it was one of the things that uh, that Zaslav said towards the end. Is that basically everyone got in their mind that subscribers and subscriber numbers that that was the answer and it's not what the answer is, and so that's why you're getting Netflix going to an advertised supported tier, and it's why one of the things that Zaslav was emphasizing was different levels of advertising-supported tiers are going to be part of the future of whatever the heck the blended thing is. So there will be there will be entirely heavily ad-supported, there will be ad-light, but still you know whatever, and then there will also be a premium offering for people who like to spend money,
0: and, and I think that's. It's awesome. not- and free, I, plus a free service like Pluto or or, yeah, that, or
1: freebie, freebie, freebie to be, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, I just it, I, I don't know how you tell the creative community that the possibility will always exist from now on that if the executive in charge of your company doesn't like your movie that it's just going to vanish entirely. That's that's where I start getting really, really concerned. Like, there has always been the, if the person in charge of the company doesn't like your movie, it could get buried. And people used the term buried. But what that really meant was, it'll only go out to 1,000 theaters as opposed to 3,000, or we simply won't spend money on advertising. That was what buried used to mean. The right, fact like getting that,
0: dumped off on, on Friday nights yeah. or Saturday nights after you're yeah. a TV well, show.
1: Or, or that it would go straight to streaming. You know, that, that was also a way of the, that the vernacular had us thinking that's what dumping was. Uh, but the fact that now there is an existing possibility that hundreds to thousands of people and a $90 million movie could absolutely vanish. That is worrisome to me. And it would be really worrisome to me if I were every single creative Person in Hollywood, I but would I also want,
0: think that that threat I, has always existed. And give me, I think give me, what what's what the example? Now, give me the
1: example. Give me the where? Give me the example of the movie that got not buried in a casual way that does not exist. And I, and this is not like that Jerry I don't Lewis cover movie. movies
0: Dan. I cover TV, but I will. I can think of a lot of different TV shows that were canceled before TV, they were. Before TV they is prepared. an enti-
1: TV is an entirely different business, and that's and the TV- same.
0: And it's a similar amount of of resources, right? How many times do we joke about hieroglyph?
1: We joked about Hieroglyph, right? which cost like fifteen million to make. Hieroglyph did not cost ninety million to make, and it right. and it was made. Look,
0: they, how much did they spend on the original Game of Thrones pilot? They threw that away. Absolutely, they threw away the original Big Bang Theory pilot, right? And these are some of the most successful shows on the planet. And the thing, one of my takeaways from from the earnings call is one of is when when Zaz said he goes, you know. Yes, is is there a fear that that you make something and it's not good and it and it get and it just goes away and they pull the plug on it and they take the right the tax right down? Absolutely, but he also said we're not in any rush to release anything in any, every single quarter. We don't want to release something that's bad, so they're willing to take the time to make it better. That's one. That was one of my big takeaways. And yes, if you put a, put the extra money in there and it doesn't wind up coming out better, and then you sink it. And you take the t- and you take the right down. Yeah, I'm sure that that's going to be an option. But keep in mind, this is a business, right? Is it going to be brand damaging if you have something on the HBO shelf, right? If you have an HBO show, let me back up. If HBO releases House of the Dragon and it's awful, what does that do to the brand? it damages it. It damages the HBO brand because it stands for quality and it damages the Game of Thrones franchise as a whole, which is worth billions of dollars at this point. So think of that in a grander scale across the entire company. If you're releasing a DC film and it's a piece of shit, it's the same thing. You're going to lose millions and millions of dollars and and it has an after effect where it, it, it will affect you down the road. It affects the next line, the next person in line. So if he's doing a 10 a 10-year plan, and he starts off, and the first thing is a piece of shit, good grief. What does that say for the rest of the 10-year plan? Does it make people excited for it? No, it damages it. So its he's not wrong to say that, but at the same time, like, so he laid out the, the, the three strategic uh, priorities, and one of them is attract the best storytellers to produce compelling and diverse content. The second one is maximize reach, engagement, and value to the broad distribution strategy, and the third is to operate as one company with a mission to be the entertainment leader globally. To me, it, it, it makes sense. If something's bad, you're going to work on it.
1: I it makes sense in an ideal situation. It just comes down to where the bottom line of the decision is coming. Is it, you know, if is Casey Blois making the determination on? whether something is good enough to see the light of day or is David Zaslov. If you were to tell me it's Casey Bloys, I could nod. I could go, OK, I have a sense of what his track record is. I have a sense that he is part of a creative and development community. I don't necessarily know that his taste is my taste, but some of the time it is. So, OK, but I just it's such a it's such a strange revision of the industry because Every executive in Hollywood is on a short leash and they're always being replaced constantly. And so basically, anytime anyone wants to simply say, oh, it's as simply as quality to bury it, it becomes worrisome to me because then you're saying, "Okay, I'm not going to put anything that my predecessor made, you know, available to people or something. I
0: I, I, look how many shows that Casey's predecessors at HBO Max and Sarah Aubrey, who's still there, developed for HBO Max that Casey is getting credit for.
1: A lot of them. I think the TV, though, is a different business. I mean, that is that is a fundamental thing is that a lot of a lot of the things that I find most unsettling about the pulling of Batgirl and Scoob and whatever, which have literally nothing to do with that girl and scoop because i could care less about either of those projects and by that i mean i couldn't care less because if i could then i did and i don't uh, so those don't matter to me they matter in a in a symbolic way or they matter in a who is the person making these decisions and do i trust them way it is it's the reason why there are certain executives creative executives on the TV side who we trust and there are certain ones who we don't and at this moment I don't know that I trust David Zaslov as a creative entity do I trust him as a business entity it doesn't matter because I'm not a shareholder He's holder. not supposed
0: to be someone <laughs> that you trust on the on a creative side he's a businessman and he and his job right now is to take these two companies turn them into one giant conglomerate that will compete directly with disney and netflix he doesn't give a shit what what's on it like if great house of the dragon more game of thrones why do you think they're going to make a game of thrones prequel because that's what the people want he's like go for it we're going to take all the shackles off all anything that your predecessor said or did there's a new sheriff in town here we go let's go but is that all the people want (laughs) or do people hear that finale
1: but or no but what i mean is is all that people want an a a good version of something from an established brand because if that is all that people want is a good version of an established brand then it sounds like that is what warner discovery is going to give people and incidentally a good version of an established brand is always better than a bad version of an established brand but do people also want a good version of something that's very, very small and very, very personal and may not necessarily in any way whatsoever be instantly financially successful. You know what is the
0: what is the? I, I'm not. I, I think there's a couple things going on here, Dan. I'm. I i do not disagree with anything that that you're saying. Okay. I think that the idea that they're only going to make shows out of current brands and nothing more, that there's no room for an original idea like Gordita Chronicles. I don't think that that's accurate. <laughs> I just okay?
1: love how often we've mentioned Gordita, Gordita. Chronicles on this.
0: I, I, I think I watched the first couple episodes. It was cute. Yeah, you know, that was um, all
1: it was. I never said it was a great yeah, show.
0: I, I'm, I'm not arguing. But at the same time, what the bucket that Gordita Chronicles was in is a bucket that didn't perform.
1: Okay, so kids but, and but, family content. But why throw out the bucket? It. Is my me, question be,
0: because you already have the bucket okay what you're saying what, gordita chronicles was part of a kids and family scripted originals brand what from my sources everything that i'm hearing the kids and family content that is wildly consumed on hbo max is the kids and family library content that already exists it is really hard to cut through okay we've talked we've just you know we've got land graph on the show we have talked so many times about how much TV there is and how hard it is to cut through. Imagine that, but on a kids programming stage, right? Like if if you're, you know, you're now you're Warner Brothers Discovery and you're David Zaslav and you're like, okay, we've got Looney Tunes, we're gonna br- bring Tiny Tunes back. I'm sure there's already Tiny Tunes back, but like we're gonna do Tiny Tunes with a diverse lead, and and it'll be marketed right next to the original Looney Tunes that kids still watch or whatever we know that that about what. They're watching in the kids and family space. We're going to lean into what's working and go from there. And it's sad that, it, that an original and a cute show like Gordita Chronicles couldn't work in that bucket. But that doesn't mean it can't work somewhere else. The other part of it is, is, it, is that Gordita Chronicles wasn't owned by Warner Brothers. So even if it, even if it were, it doesn't, it doesn't work with what's already working, with, with what's already performing. Sorry. I, like, I just went off on a tangent here. <laughs> I,
1: li- I like this because this uh, this is, I think, very illustrative of our two different perspectives on this. Uh, I, love, I, I love this
0: discussion because
1: I am coming at this completely and totally from a naive. I would like I would like things to be good, and I would like things to be diverse perspective. And I understand that it's completely naive and it has nothing to do with anything. But on the other hand. It, it just listening in on calls like that and watching the ne- the news cycle this week, I, I find it all infuriating on a on an artistic and creative level. But and you're coming at it much 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 more from a business perspective because that's because that's your job and that's what you're that's what our show at. is. It it's what we I like to think we're. A He's comfortable... the critic,
0: she's the reporter. Together <laughs> oh, I... they make TV's top five.
1: This, that's a promo that either actually have existed at some point or that we, or that we rejected it at some point. I don't remember. I think we that did one. that too. Okay. I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't sure if, I wasn't sure if we batgirled that promo entirely or oh, if, uh, too soon. <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't sure if we batgirled that, that, uh, promo or if we knew mutants did. I mean, if we knew mutants did, at least someone heard it somewhere and it existed. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I did the, I, 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 I'm just sad and naive because I like HBO Max the way it is. I like that it has good movies, a good library. It seems curated, and much of the stuff on it is good. Is all of the stuff on it good? No. Can DC use a creative overhaul? Good freaking gracious, yes. <laughs> so, yeah, I I don't I don't know. I it, it but nothing. Would you o-
0: like to be able to watch? Discovery content and CNN content and HBO content and Friends and Game of Thrones and Big Bang Theory and all the other library content and Looney Tunes content and all this other stuff and Fixer Upper and Magnolia Network and CNN and have it all in one place. Yes, I
1: would. You know what else I would that's like? That's what's going to happen. You know what else I would like? I would also like to be able to uh, get all of my Hulu content and all of my Disney Plus content and all of my uh, whatever the heck else that is content. I would ESPN, like to get all yeah. ESPN. I would like to get all of that in one place.
0: I mean, I, that's going to happen at some point. The The problem, too, is you've got Comcast is still got, got ties to Hulu through, I think, what, next year or 2024? I can't remember off the top of my head. So. Once that's out of the way, I mean, that's I think I ask Hulu execs about that every single time I talk to them. I think I, I, I think we even talked to Landgraf about it. If I'm not, I thinking. think
1: that was me attempting to give us a transition.
0: Ah, I see what you did there. Dan. No, you too didn't. Much caffeine at this You point.
1: didn't see what I did there. That was just the point.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, let's transition then. Shall we up up next? Here we go.
2: The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumpaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Number three.
0: Up next, we are joined for the third time by FX CEO John Landgraf, the so-called mayor of television who in 2015 coined the term Peak TV to describe the scripted content boom. This week, Landgraf provided a rare mid-year update on the volume of U.S. originals, with that tally clocking in at a whopping 357 shows, that is U.S. scripted originals from January through the end of June A 16% surge as he predicted that 2022 would break last year's record volume of 559 U.S. English language scripted originals. He also predicted that this year would truly be the peak of Peak TV, which admittedly came with the disclaimer that his previous prediction of the bubble popping back in 2018 or 2019, which he called was way, way off. So thanks for joining us again, John.
3: Happy to be here again, Leslie and Dan.
0: So let's start with the peak TV numbers that you talked about a little bit this week. Is it really that simple that no new major streaming services will be launched in the immediate future as the reason that you think the total volume will slow?
3: Yeah, but I was wrong before. So, you know, you say <laughs> it's really that simple. And I'm like, well, yeah, because um, I guess what I watched during the rise was, you know, The number of scripted purveyors and i'm old enough that i remember when there were three broadcast networks and pbs right and then there were four networks and that just number just steadily climbed right to the point where i had a list of at one point i think almost 60 different services channels streamers uh that were making original scripted programming in america um and then you layered it. what I missed was that is that essentially along would come these very large streaming platforms that would in and of themselves make uh, one of them anyway would make hundreds of, of scripted television shows. And that's where I really missed it. But um, I don't really see any of those platforms significantly increasing the the, the, the amount of American or English language scripted program they're making. And, you know, no more big ones are launching and many are exiting the business. So I could be wrong, but that's that's my gut.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, and we're also at a point where, you know, some of these first year shows with ratings that we haven't got a clue about how they're performing are being turned into these big franchises because these streamers continue to want more, more, more and to drive audiences based on some fashion of success that that remains completely and totally cryptic, but, you know, at the same time, we've got these linear outlets like TNT and TBS and USA, which we've talked about recently on the show, who have practically exited the scripted space. So for you guys, you know, FX originals right now are largely exclusively for Hulu. Um, I'm I'm curious, you know, how has your own volume changed with this focus on the streaming first? And I mean, do you think that that will continue to indicate that streamers will continue to be all in or might they back down a little bit?
3: Well, I mean, we've roughly doubled and we we, or will be doubling. I guess we're in the process of doubling. Um, but I think the cadence at which we're releasing things right now rel- reflects about a doubling of our output. And generally speaking, what that is is the same output for our linear channels that we were doing for the prior 10 years, plus more exclusive FX shows for Hulu that we're now adding on and making in addition to the ones that we were making before. Um, and I, you know, look, I, I think that you can see some streamers, for example, re-emphasizing global commissioning and uh, non-English language commissioning because, uh, some of the growth potential is not for them anymore in the United States and Canada. It's more in, you know, Europe or Asia or Latin America. And, um, so I think that's the other factor is I think that there was, uh, I think I think the vast majority of the commissioning dollars were concentrated here or in the English language. And I think now they're being spread out more globally. And we don't count non-English language series in that. So, you know, that's a pretty narrow definition of peak TV, because really, does it matter that TV is in English that, to call it TV? You know, so probably the peak hasn't come if you want to look at all TV in all different languages. But I operate in the american you know consumer market and that's where i think we're probably you know at near the top like it was a little um it was a little nutty what was released you know again in the last month of emmy qualifications this year was probably not the optimal distribution of movie star driven uh television programming in a short period of time
1: well, I want to ask, given that your oversight, and you discussed this at, at the press tour panel, is now more on FX as an overall holistic brand and not necessarily as a cable network anymore. I'm curious what the, the tangible role of the network is, in your opinion, going forward and kind of who decides what things will actually air on FX as a cable network. When is that decision made? Why is that decision made? It's a little question. I know.
3: Yeah, (laughs) there's a there's a heavy amount of consultation between um, I'll just speak for myself between, you know, I consult very heavily with what I would now describe as my distribution or business partners who are part of what's called Disney Media and Entertainment Distribution Company. And they
0: Yeah, Kareem Daniels division, right?
3: Yeah, and they include you know Deborah O'Connell and Chuck Safler who run the linear channels, and they include Michael Paul and Joe Early who run uh, Hulu, and they include uh, Rebecca Campbell and and various commissioning and distribution teams in Europe, Middle East, and Africa, in Latin America and Asia. So there's you know it's it, there's a lot of of consultation around s- scheduling, and there's a lot of fluidity right now about. Uh, you know, understanding what's working in the marketplace and what's the best way to schedule a show. You know, we launched two shows within a very short period of time of each other, the old man and the bear one, we launched with two episodes and then a weekly drop. And once we dropped as one, we dropped as a binge. So obviously that means that we don't necessarily believe that there's only one way to succeed in terms of how you schedule things. And, and frankly, we haven't seen any meaningful difference to your question, Dan, between, Things that are scheduled on either FXX or FX and Hulu or scheduled only on Hulu. Um, We've had successful comedies that launched on FXX. We've had successful comedies go from FX to Hulu. We've had dramas on FX that have been massively successful performers on Hulu. And we've had exclusives on Hulu that have done extremely well. Um, So the audience is different between the linear channel and Hulu. There's, as I said, there's only about one or 2% overlap when you put a show on, on uh, both the channel and the streaming service. So the, 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 the audiences are 98 or 99% different, uh, which is remarkable to me. Um, but all of it seems to work. Like we can, we seem to be able to aggregate up an audience. We're seeing audiences. What I, what I will say also is that it was hard being a linear channel because, I mean you could feel it we could all feel it that th- that linear channels are still a lot of syndicated programming is watched on linear channel and soap operas and daytime television and game shows and news and live sports are doing really really well on linear television but if you look at scripted programming on linear television um it just isn't as heavily consumed as it was five or ten years ago that the consumption of scripted programming has m- migrated to streaming platforms and so for a an organization like FX, I, we didn't think that we were making. We think we, we thought we were making shows that were just as good. In many cases, they were the same shows, but the usage of them was diminishing as the consumption on linear channels was diminishing, and we had less and less access to younger audiences, which were increasingly choosing streaming platforms. And so, that entire distribution apparatus or, or potential was rebuilt when we put our, our, our all of our shows on Hulu, and all of a sudden, we're seeing numbers uh in terms of usage and i'm sorry that i can't be as more transparent but we're seeing numbers that are the kind of numbers we were putting up a decade ago right back when uh linear uh, basic cable was in its prime so that's that's thrilling because we just needed uh we needed to be a part of the new world in terms of distribution and we are now
0: you know, and obviously speaking of this new world, we're in an era of consolidation across the board. Obviously, you know, we've all seen how Disney's acquisition of the Fox assets has really supersized Disney as a whole. And now you're seeing the same thing happening at Warner Brothers and Discovery. But as part of this uh, consolidation process, you know, there have been a lot of rumors for the past six months to a year plus that Hulu's fate or future is kind of in question right now because you've seen more recently, you know, you look, you mentioned, you know, things migrating to streaming. Disney moved ABC's Dancing with the Stars to streaming. This week we saw um, NBC move Days of Our Lives to Peacock exclusively for first run. And, you know, looking at the streaming first atmosphere, you've got this, you, Disney has these two different platforms, right? And And there's shows that are on Hulu and that are now being put, on Disney Plus, so you can watch on both platforms. How much longer do you anticipate Hulu actually existing and being the home of FX? Or could you see the FX brand migrate to become a tab like Marvel, like Lucasfilm, like Pixar, et cetera, on Disney Plus as part of the larger industry focused consolidation?
3: Well, I'm gonna demure on some of that question, Leslie, just because I, you know, in the way that Disney is organized, that's, those were not my decisions to make. Uh, I don't run the distribution or the streaming services. I I run a branded entertainment division called FX. Um, and I and what I but I would point you to you know the the public uh, statements of of our chief executive officer Bob Chapek, who has really thrown down on the desire to continue what was begun in the in the merger or the acquisition of Fox, which is to say. Disney being, you know, deeply engaged in what you'd call general entertainment, right? Not only branded family-oriented entertainment, which it's still I would say the leading, you know, purveyor in the world of that, but in but in general entertainment. And so what I what I really focus have focused on is was the job that 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 I'm being hired to do. What's the job that FX branded Programming is being hired to do. How important is that job to the company that we are a part of the Walt Disney company? And are we doing it well? And I think what you can see is that the the scale of these companies and the scale of these platforms is vast. And, you know, they have to offer things that are relevant and valuable for a meaningful subset of everyone um, that's the prize, right? And, um, and I think Disney's in it to win it. So how they, how they organize that, um, that approach, I don't, I don't really know, but, but, but at the end of the day, the reason we leaned into this idea of being an above the title brand, right. And we, we rebuilt our logo so that it's more, um, Horizontal, right? Its 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 it's aspect ratio is a little more cinematic and belongs a little bit more with a title, whereas it was square and boxy before. Is because wherever the titles go, we want the brand to go, regardless of where they go or how they're distributed or what platform they're on. And um, and ultimately, what we leaned into is this notion that for some subset of consumers. the notion that FX made this or that they developed it or commissioned it or or presenting it is meaningful to them from as a qualitative distinction or in terms of tone and that that was our best identity, like trying to fight to hold on to some prior distribution apparatus or structure or identity as a channel was not where we should put our efforts. Um, By the way, I'm glad the channels are still really thriving under Chuck and Deborah's leadership. I don't want them to go away. I'm, you know, uh, uh, an FX partisan from a channel standpoint, but, but ultimately as far as the programming goes, I've always just used looked at the brand as a, as a, as a prism, like it's accountability on some level, right? If you're, if you don't, if you don't have a brand, um, or your brand is literally everything in the world, then if you make something and it's offensive or it's not good, um, it just washes downstream, right? It's, it's, it's not connected to your brand. Like it, 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 you know, you're just a a catchment area for a whole lot of stuff. Some of it good, some of it not so good. I like uh, Netflix, the- <coughs> excuse me. Netflix.
0: I'm sorry. Sorry about that. <coughs> <Hey>. Netflix. <coughs> time, um, Thank you.
3: Um, I like the idea that we're forever accountable, you know? Uh, so we get the credit and the benefit to, to whatever extent uh, our consumers, want to give it to us? Will we make something that's special and valuable to them? And if we, if we make something bad, um, it besmirches our good reputation and name. And I think that, you know, that, that, that really makes you think it makes you work hard that accountability. So I, I like that. Um, and, um, and it, and it, and it's been a filter that's been a helpful filter for us. And, and of course, you guys are, you know, our our critics and writers and reviewers. So you know we don't always get it right. You don't always like everything we make, but we try to get it right more often than get it. We get it wrong. That's that's the only value we have, I guess. What a, like? Why should FX if we can't get it right more often than we get it wrong? Why should it exist? It's not as if we have a unique set of IP or characters that no one else can access that we that we and only we can exploit. It's it's literally only about taste and process and and quality.
2: When it comes
1: to that brand and defining that brand given that Hulu has given that brand a different reach and potentially a different demographic and given that you guys have in recent years gotten into different scheduling formats and you know more limited series getting more into documentary programming etc does it feel like the FX brand is the same as it was five years ago. Can you define it and define how
3: it's maybe different than it was five years ago? Well, I guess I, th- I think that, that I'm all, we're always trying to ask ourselves how elastic is the brand? You know, in other words, what, what could be in it successfully that we don't know could be in it successfully. Um, but the flip side of it is if everything could be in it, then it's not a brand. Right. So, so, I would say you see us testing that elasticity over time. And sometimes we we put a show in that maybe shouldn't be, shouldn't be where the, the direction of the brand, but other other times we put a show in that sort of expands your perception of what FX can do or can't do. So you know you you cited um, unscripted programming, and and I think we felt like we could bring some quality, some character driven, Thematically driven, layered storytelling. Not that we're it by any means the only one doing it, but that, that we could do a little bit, bit of it relatively well, and that it would it would um, integrate well with the other scripted programming we were doing. But you know, a lot of the times we just we just try to follow wherever we think the best writing and the f- best filmmaking is. To be honest with you, I think we think I think I think that you know nobody needs us to make. Uh, shows that are just like the kinds of shows anybody else would make or could make. Like, that's just not what you want from us. You don't need from us. There are, there are plenty of places that make shows that are, um, you know, adjacent to other commercially successful shows and that are familiar to you and that have a sort of comfort level. I think where we're, when we have been at our best was what is when we have linked up with a creator who, who has a distinctive point of view um and often a point of view that's that's somehow a little unusual or a little a a little different than what you've seen before and then and then manage not to screw it up like manage to let them make the show that they want to make without screwing it up that's when we're at our best again i'm not suggesting that only fx can do that um, but i'm suggesting that i think we can do it well enough and consistently enough at enough scale that if that's your cup of tea if that kind of programming is your cup of tea You know, you might be a consumer that will pay attention to the existence of FX above the title because it'll mean something to you. And as I said, I don't think I get to decide whether that's the the case or not, nor do I think, you know, Leslie, you and Dan get to decide. I think that the consumer gets to decide. I don't think we know the answer yet. But what I will say is that it is it can be bewildering to go into a very, very large retail space with hundreds or thousands of prospective choices and, and effectively, no branding, right? Um, if you imagine walking into a supermarket with no branding, I think it would be a bewilderingly <laughs> difficult challenge to shop for your weekly groceries. And the analogy isn't perfect, but I think I sometimes feel that because it's just the scale of the library that's available and the content that's available on a streaming platform relative to a linear stream is so vast that with nothing to give me a harbinger of quality or tone, I really struggle sometimes to 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 efficiently find things. And look, algorithms can do some of the work, but but the algorithm, when is the algorithm going to know whether you had a good day or a bad day, whether you would want to laugh or cry, whether you're alone or with your significant other or one of your kids which might who might have different tastes than the other of your kids or your same sex friend or your opposite sex like it just doesn't know. And so ultimately I think we as consumers have to close the last hundred yards between our emotional state and the thing that we want to consume. And I don't think that, I think we're better at closing that last hundred yards than the algorithm is. So that's where I think things that allow us to, 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 to have agency in closing that last little, that last few yards, right between us and the thing we want to experience at that moment in time, will still have value um, how they'll manifest. And it, Leslie, like what, How many streaming services there will be and what they will be named and how they will be structured and all that is, you know, beyond the scope of my intelligence or responsibility. But um, obviously, I'm I'm betting on the notion that a few good brands will still have meaning, whatever, whatever the answer to that question is.
0: You know, and you, you kind of teed up my next question here, but, you know, we're at a very anxious time in our industry. It feels like everyone is kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop with the, with what's going to happen with HBO Max and Discovery Plus when they, those two services eventually merge, which is going to be a new title. What does it mean for HBO Originals? What does it mean for the larger universe? What is it? What will happen with the Disney consolidation? Will Peacock be here in five years? You know, what is, what's the future of linear? I mean, as someone who seven years ago put, Coined the term peak TV to really put a, a a name to what our overall industry was feeling at the time. What do you think is the is the next big topic that we should be talking about and, and focusing on?
3: I think industries always go through expansion and then consolidation. And I and I, you know, you your your question in some ways was the question of what will consolidation look like? And I don't know what consolidation will look like. I just know that. Uh, that industries, you know, grow and then they consolidate because essentially there's a it's like winter, summer, spring and fall. Right. There's a there's a some there's a season of growth. Right. There's spring, there's summer and then there's fall. There's a pruning process. At, I sound like Cha- Chauncey Gardner. Right now. <laughs> 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 and I think that, you know, there's going to be that pruning and consolidation process. Um, that's probably why I think that, you know, that that we're at or near the the peak of peak TV. Um, but I have no idea what that's going to look like. I, what, what I will say is that, you know, I like the, I, I think, I think anybody at the table has some good cards in their hand and they have some problematic cards in their hand and they have, they, they wish they had some aspects of their opponent's hand and, and their opponent wishes they had some aspect of their hand the the hand I like best is the Walt well, is Walt Disney Company's hand. Me personally, I, it's not that I think it's perfect or that you know that that everything uh, is always and only going to be smooth sailing. I just think in the aggregate, it's 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 the best hand in the in the um, in, in the game at the moment. And so I, I'm super grateful that you know they didn't have an FX and that they bought us. Because I, because I, because again, I don't, I don't want to do any job other than the job that FX has been trying as best we could to do for the last 20 years. I just needed a way of doing that job uh, within a successful strategy inside the larger ecosystem. And again, I'm not a CEO. I'm not a big distribution uh, honcho. I, I just, I just try to help people make television shows. But I'm I'm glad I'm getting to make them in what I believe is a very cogent and successful business strategy because I want to keep doing it. That's the bottom yeah. line.
0: Yeah, well, we're going to give you the wrap that we give our showrunners uh, at the end of our interviews here. But outside of FX Fair, what have you been watching and enjoying? Oh. I should say outside of FX and FX on Hulu Fair.
3: I am watching so much FX Fair right now. I mean, it is... <sighs> I'm watching a lot of classic films right now because I have, I, I have three sons, but one is an aspiring composer and one's an aspiring writer. So they want to go back through the canon again, which is, is pretty fun for me. By the way, my, my wife and my youngest are rewatching The Shield. And that's kind of interesting peeking in on that because I started working on that in this third season. And it's it's so strange for me, like surreal watching it um, uh, go back. I guess, look, I'm a big David Simon fan. I liked We Own We Own the City, you know. I, I, and I like John Bernthal and appreciate very much the fact that he came and did a little cameo for us on uh, one of our shows. Um, so I like that show. Nicely done, bringing it back around. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Nicely done. Thanks so much for joining us, John. Always a pleasure.
3: Good to talk to you both. Number four.
0: Up next, you've heard from the mayor of television about the state of Peak TV, and now it's time to find out what's worth watching or skipping in the week ahead with The Critics Corner. Among this week's major new launches, HBO's Industry and FX's Reservation Dogs return for their respective second seasons. Beavis and Butthead <laughs> are coming back on Paramount Plus. <laughs> Netflix, they've used Neil Gaiman's pricey DC drama, The Sandman, and Amazon launches The Outlaws. Dan, <clears throat> what you got?
1: I already talked about Reservation Dogs last week, but of course, because it's on hulu and that's where it lives not on fx and not on fx on hulu because fx on hulu doesn't exist anymore regardless it's all semantics and as i told you last week it's fantastic i've seen four episodes and they're tremendous and the first season is only eight episodes so if you haven't watched it yet uh please do so um (laughs) beavis and butthead are this is technically their Second part, or their second comeback, or the second part of their comeback on Paramount Plus, uh, because of course they had Beavis and Butthead do the universe that premiered in June on Paramount Plus, and that was a feature,
0: which and, laid the groundwork for this new one,
1: which laid the groundwork somewhat for this new one. I, I think. Well, it set the I, audience; it it brought the audience over for this. It did, this one. but also it it kind of <laughs> it gave the impression. That it was explaining how Beavis and Butthead found themselves in 2022, um, in their original forms. There was interdimensional, interuniverse travel and all of that. A- and it felt as if it was actually important as table setting. Ultimately, it really and truly. Isn't. These are simply regular episodes of Beavis and Butthead, in which Beavis and Butthead are Beavis and Butthead and it's 2022. So you don't really need to have seen Beavis and Butthead do the universe to understand what happens in Beavis and Butthead because it's not really that rich and complicated a text. Um, but <clears throat> shut up, Beavis. <laughs> I'm just letting you I'm just letting you do this. It's all it's all good. Uh, <laughs> totally, totally fine. Uh <laughs> But yes, and anyway, anyone who actually is going to be watching a Beavis and Butthead series probably also wanted to watch the Beavis and Butthead movie. So I feel like they have similar audiences being the same show. But the
0: thing <coughs> that... <You> the- think. <coughs>
1: Been, I'm sorry Dan I'll stop it's been a it's been a <laughs> long week kids <laughs> a long long week we might just be a little bit broken
0: uh, um I also just kind of enjoy doing improv oh no no so
1: I I can that. tell you're having fun which is why I'm allowing you to do it'm I'm, I'm sure there's a mute button here that I could press somewhere but instead I I enjoy the amusement uh and guess what I' also...
0: <clears throat> thanks Dan <clears throat> uh, uh,
1: can you like shut up <clears throat> All I was saying was that I was really going to hold out until eventually Cornholio showed up and that was all I was waiting for. So, I need TP for my Cornholio! Leslie is not a TV critic, but she is a very, very successful Beavis and Butthead impersonator. So, who knew?
0: (laughs) I have many hidden talents. Most of them rather prefer to to stay hidden.
1: I'm surprised this didn't come out out when the movie came out so oh well uh anyway the series is pretty solid like basically the movie showed that there was absolutely no reason why beavis and butthead who are basically every single person on twitter you know w- beavis and butthead became all of us or we all became beavis and butthead i don't know which is which but certainly at this point we are a world of beavis and butthead and really all i'm gonna say is the new episodes are pretty good it basically it does return to regular format beavis and butthead so they are watching things and enjoying things and of course the original series they were largely enjoying mtv music videos and then it came back a decade ago and there were really no more mtv music videos so they were watching a lot of mtv reality and now what they're watching is largely a lot of TikTok, but also the occasional videos. Uh, for example, they do watch a BTS video, and it is very, very entertaining, their reactions to it. Uh, but their reactions to TikTok are also extremely amusing. The overall series itself is pretty much bog-standard Beavis and Butthead. It's If you like it, you will continue to enjoy it. If you don't like it, you're not suddenly going to discover that Beavis and Butthead amuse you. Uh, so yeah, I, I was perfectly amused by the, it really, they only sent out two episodes to critics. So I was amused. The only other thing I'm really going to talk about this week is, uh, is The Sandman, which is, of course, based on the Neil Gaiman, uh, long running comic series. And it has, of course, been in various different forms of development as a movie as a tv show as countless other things for many 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 years we you know i'm pretty sure joseph gordon levitt mentioned it back when we had him on the podcast or i think we asked him about it or we mentioned it or something but he was he was supposed to direct and star in one of the versions that came somewhat closest to actually getting made Here it actually is. It's it's ten episodes. I've watched six, and part of the reason why I've only watched six is, honestly, it is not my particular flavor of fantasy slash comic book. I mean, I'm definitely not opposed to such things. It's just a little bit more in the kind of cosmic vein that... Happens not to be my personal preference. So this is not a comic I have any investment in. So keep that very, 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 very much in mind because some people are deeply invested in it. Um, and, and so my response is going to be a little bit tepid simply because it, it's the, the sort of personification side of storytelling that neil gaiman does is not my favorite it's part of why i'm a little bit mixed on american gods as well etc cetera, etc cetera. it wasn't the
0: constant changing of showrunners and actors talking about how horrible that entire process was and what a mess it was behind the scene that turned you off of uh, american gods
1: i think that was ultimately why i didn't continue to watch the series to its end but it uh, you know but that one in that case i actually had read the book i you know that one I was more interested in than this one. Uh, the actual series, as it finally arrives uh, with Alan Heinberg as its showrunner, is is decent. It 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 has for me at least all of the the liabilities that I can simply only limitedly get behind. You know, everybody's like, "Oh, that's dream," and everyone's making big. Things about the personification of dreams, about the personification of death, about the personification of desire. And it gets a little exhausting for me. So that is simply that. Also, I have never found Tom Sturridge to be a hugely exciting actor. He is the star here playing Morpheus. I've, I've seen him on stage. I liked him more on stage than I've ever liked him in anything filmed. He's just, to me, he's kind of a, an attractive charisma-free kind of black hole, unfortunately. Uh, and part of that actually really does kind of benefit what the character of Morpheus slash dream is supposed to be. Uh, but also part of it doesn't. So it's a series in which the main character is easily the part that interests me the least. Um, it has an interesting largely episodic structure, which I would presume comes out of the comic, and it allows for there to be episodes that work for me significantly better. But again, I watched six episodes, and after the first episode, when I was really not engaged, I I was beginning to find more and more of it entertaining, because a lot of the supporting actors are... Just really a lot of fun. So you have Jenna Coleman playing Joanna Constantine. Um, I'm not exactly sure on the pronunciation. I'm sure there's a reason why within the, why they decided to go Constantine, not Constantine. But anyway, I, I don't know everything when it comes to this particular world. Jenna Coleman, though, is a blast. She's a lot of fun to watch here. Um, I think that probably, uh, Boyd Holbrook is at least amusing and entertaining as the Corinthian. And then you start getting to the people who I, I started finding really good. So there's a full episode based around David Thewlis's character. And I always love watching David Thewlis. And that episode is sort of cringy and and scary and disturbing and, and definitely takes the series to dark places. This is certainly not an adaptation for kids. Uh, There's also a really, really solid episode with Kirby Howell-Baptiste playing Death. I liked that episode. That was the sixth episode, and it was probably my favorite of the ones that I watched. There are a lot of good things here. I was constantly trying to wonder why it wasn't a step loopier, a step more inspired, a step more I don't know, unfamiliar. And part of why it's familiar, of course, is because the comic is so seminal at this point that it's been ripped off in a number of different ways and its style, its characterizations, etc., have been adapted under different names. People have stolen stuff from Sandman. And that means, unfortunately, that the thing that's the original has to look not necessarily like a copy, but like a less inspired version uh and and so i felt there was a lot of that you know sort of the the visuals of hell the visuals of of the kingdom of Dr- uh, dreams kingdom castle etc none of it feels entirely as revolutionary as i feel like probably it ought to uh but it's decently realized the special effects are really pretty good I would say. Uh, So that means things like adorable little gargoyle babies bumping into things, uh, sort of some cute stuff. And, you know, then you have Patton Oswalt as the voice of a, of a crow or a raven. That kind of thing is amusing. Mostly I was watching for the individual actors and to kind of see what each episode was. And I can't say whether my general ambivalence or, More than that disinterest in the main character. I can't say whether that's intentional, whether it's an appropriate adaptation, et cetera. So once again, taking it all with grains of salt, those are, those are my thoughts on Sandman is it's, you know, it was never going to be for me. Uh, our colleague Angie Hahn is reviewing it. She read the books, so she is much better suited than I am for that. Uh, but I, I, it feels as if it's, Dedicated enough to the source material that it's the kind of thing where people might just be so grateful to see it brought to screen with respect. And it's very clearly brought to screen with respect. So, yeah. Um, oh, I didn't mention, I didn't mention Gwendolyn Christie. Totally got to mention Gwendolyn Christie. Cause I mean, for heaven's sake, she's Brianna of Tarth and she plays, uh, she plays uh, the ruler of hell and she's a blast also. Lots of very, very good people pop up in this series. Charles Dance, uh, pops up. Um, I hear Stephen Fry is eventually going to show up. Julie Richardson is there. It's uh, there are, in fact, whole long stretches where one semi random actor after another pop up and it becomes kind of a, a strange game of, wait, where do I know that person from? Oh, he played William Shakespeare in in that TNT show that I barely remember existed where there was young William Shakespeare think it might have even been called will i watched a handful of episodes of that it was called
0: will and it did air on tnt i believe
1: yes so he he's he's in i think the fifth episode and it took me 45 minutes to figure out where i recognized him from uh, In that same episode, there's uh, Daisy Head appears. She was in some freeform show that I could not begin to remember the name, but she's also significant because she's uh, Giles's daughter. And so uh, she looks vaguely like Giles if you look at her. And so, again, it took me 45 minutes watching that episode to be like, wait, where do I know her from? That one I didn't figure out until the end. And then Daisy Head's in the credit. I'm like, oh, God, of course she's she's Anthony's daughter. She looks kind of almost exactly like him. Go figure. Anyway, Sandman. So, yeah, that's that's what we got this week. Uh, and I will give you one last chance to do a Beavis and Butthead impression.
0: <coughs> For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, <coughs> be sure to subscribe to THR. now see this newsletter <coughs> and bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews. <coughs> cool, fire. <coughs>
1: Number five. We are. Shifting up our formaty a little bit this week, and we are closing uh, by talking about the death of Vin Scully this week um, for Los Angelinos. He is, of course, best known for his 67 years broadcasting the Dodgers, who he first started broadcasting for back when they were in Brooklyn. And he has, of course, called countless other major sporting events, not just baseball, but also Almost every imaginable significant moment in baseball history over the past multiple decades. Um, There's just no way to say it other than that, you know, if you if you made a Mount Rushmore of great broadcasting personalities, it's entirely possible it would be a Mount Rushmore of one. But even if it weren't, he would be guaranteed a place if you made a Mount Rushmore of Dodgers greats. Definitely that one has multiple people on it, starting with Jackie Robinson. But Vince Gully has a place there as well. He is basically not just the voice of the Dodgers, but the voice of baseball, to some degree, the voice of sports and significant to all sports fans. But as you may know about my colleague Leslie, she's a little bit of a Dodgers fan. And surely Vince Gully is of great significance to her and... And so, yeah, I mean, given that he's a TV personality and not just a baseball personality, seems right to have Leslie pay tribute.
0: Yeah, I've been uh, we've been talking about if this should be a segment on the show uh, for well, for the past couple of days. And, you know, obviously, it's something that I feel strongly about Vin. You know, I've, I've been trying to put words to what Vin's passing means to me. And, you know, I think a lot of people have said this and I'm going to join that that chorus. But. Uh, it's like losing a family member if you're you know for me i'm i'm born and raised la i fell in love with the game of baseball when i was 12 my grandfather leo always had dodger games on always had angel games on too but the things that i really enjoyed the most was listening to vin tell stories i mean my desire to be a storyteller stems from vin scully it's Listening to not just him call the game, but in between pitches and innings and everything, he would tell these amazing stories about Jackie Robinson and the, you know, the Brooklyn Dodgers and little trivia bits and not just Dodger trivia or baseball trivia, but he would just, there was nothing he didn't know. And his just listening to him, it was like, like poetry, you know, especially if you're a baseball fan, especially if you're an Angelino and it, it's, you know, you, you, he's the sound of summer. You know, there, when I was a kid, you could go to the beach or you could go anywhere and all you would hear in the background somewhere was a radio with Vin's voice on it. And I remember, you know, as a kid wanting so much to just be one of the guys. And, and when the guy who came to clean my grandfather's pool, Walt, you came, would come over every Wednesday and I spent every summer with my grandparents and every time my grandpa and, and Walt would would talk about baseball. And I just wanted to, to talk with them. So I started studying the game. And studying the game, it really was just me listening to Vin. And I remember, you know, the very, very first story that I ever wrote. It was a news story, naturally, because that's what I do. And that's what I like. And it was inspired because I remember Vin talking about, Ted Williams and how there was never going to be another hitter that will ever hit over 400 in a season. And this was in the mid 80s. And I remember I wrote something about Tony Gwynn and Wade Boggs and and Don Mattingly and Cal Ripken Jr. and how maybe one of those guys could be the first. And my love of baseball, my love of the Dodgers, my love of storytelling, my work ethic, it all comes from Vin. And, you know, you know, I was watching the game the other night. It's Dodgers Giants. How can you not? It's the best, one of the best rivalries in all of sports, possible best rivalry in all of baseball. I mean, I'm Yankees Red Sox. I'm sure we can dispute that, Dan. But hearing Joe Davis, who of course was picked as Vin's successor, kind of stop the broadcast for a second and tell fans about Vin's passing in real time. I just shouted, no, like three or four different times. You know, my wife came running from the other room. Like, what the hell is going on? And, you know, it's, he was 94. You know, his, his wife, Sandy, who was always by his side or near him in the booth, died last year. Everyone knew it was coming. No one kind of prepared for it. I certainly didn't emotionally prepare for it. You know, I look around, you know, as I record this, I record from home in my living room. And at our dining room table, just to the right, I have a framed poster of Vin Scully sitting in the broadcast booth. Um, I just got, when I went to the All-Star Fan Fest, this really cool wood cutout that says Vin Scully Avenue, like you see in here right by Dodger Stadium. I have a schematic of Dodger Stadium on the wall. You know, I have photos, a framed photo from the time that I met Vin Scully, and I was able to tell him that when I was a kid, I wanted to be a broadcaster. I wanted to be him. And this podcast whether I realized it or not when, when we launched it, is probably the closest thing that I can come to to really honoring my love of Vince Scully, to really honoring my childhood dreams of wanting to be a storyteller and, and tell, and, and just it, whether it's explaining why HBO is HBO Max is bonkers right now or talking about baseball or just in my life, anytime I try to tell a story about something that happened or, or in the past or what's going on, you know, my wife always teases me. She's like, you don't tell t- stories shortly. Everything is so, you know, it's so long and dry. I'm like, yeah, Vin taught me how to be a storyteller. And that's not a bad thing, right? As you can hear from this segment, I'm kind of rambling at this point, but this is therapy for me. And, you know, speaking of therapy, I I, I do want to to give a big shout out to Joe Davis and Jessica Mendoza. It is not an easy job to announce that an icon like Vin passed and to do it in real time. You know, Joe, I know from, you know, I've interviewed him before for The Hollywood Reporter and have been lucky enough to, to meet him and talk to him a couple of times about his approach to replacing Vin. And I know he preps an awful lot for games, whether it's researching stories about certain teams or players or anything, the same as Vin used to do. But to be tasked with, relaying, first of all, relaying this news during a game during the early innings of a game and then all he did for all he ingest for the rest of the game did was recount more and more stories about vin and his impact on the game his impact on the booth joe told a really moving story about how the the conversations that he had with vin about coming in and taking over that chair and it's i, I and you to, to do that with no prep you know what i mean and you do it in real time that's a prof, uh, that's a true professional and you know, I know a lot, and there's not a lot of fans out there for Jessica Mendoza, but she talked too about the impact that, that Vin had on her, not just as a player for during her Olympic softball career and her collegiate career, but as a broadcaster too. And, and how Vin inspired her mom and and inspired her to do what she's doing now with her career. You know, it's the impact that Vin Scully had on baseball fans, Dodger fans, Angelinos, sports fans across the globe. It, it, it really can't be measured. And... It's, I'm just, I'm really sad. And it's It's a big loss and it, it leaves a big hole in my heart. And I just, you know, I I don't know that I believe in, in the afterlife. I don't know what exactly I believe in, but I know somewhere Vin and, and his wife and Tommy and Jackie Robinson and so many other Dodger greats, Don Drysdale, Connie, everyone, everyone, they're all up there listening to Vin tell stories somewhere. And it's just... Yeah, I just needed I think I just needed this to, to process this and, and I'm I am grateful to you, Dan, for giving me the space and I'm grateful to our listeners for allowing me this opportunity and to listen to our show every week. And yeah, I kinda hope I do Vin proud. So and the the one time that I was able to meet him, well, I met him twice, luckily enough. The first time was with Scott Feinberg when he went to record and, and interview him at Dodger Stadium. And Scott was our, our brilliant awards chatter host. Um, Scott was kind enough to ask, he goes, hey, you want to be my quote-unquote assistant and go to Dodger Stadium and sit and talk to Vin Scully for an hour? Um, That was incredible. And I got to shake his hand, and our fabulous producer, Matt Whitehurst, sent me the audio of me telling him how much I wanted to be him and how much he inspired me as a kid to want to be a storyteller. And hearing Vin say my name and talk to me and compliment me was... And having that audio is, yeah, I'm going to start crying again. But uh, the second time I met him, it was at, um, at an event for Only in Hollywood, which was a documentary that MLB Network did about the story of the 1988 Dodgers, which is a fabulous documentary if you're a baseball fan or a Dodger fan. And I got to do a meet and greet with him, get an autograph on a ball and tell him again about how much I loved him as a storyteller and as and everything that he's done for the city of Los Angeles. And he was never not gracious. The line was forever long. And he took all the time in the world he needed to meet with everyone. And, you know, you hear like Sportsnet LA, you know, after Vin passed the night of the passing, they ditched the postgame show and just went into news coverage of, of Vin's passing. And he, there were so many people that they had on Al Michaels, Oral Hershiser cried on the air. You know, there were so many people that that who shared stories that said the same thing about Vin. He made time for everyone. He created space for everyone. He inspired everyone. And again, just, yeah. I, I hope that there's someone in, in each of your lives who does that for you, whether it's someone you know, someone who, or, or, or someone who, who serves as an inspiration like Vin was to me. So thank you again for, for, for giving me this space and to listening to me process my feelings in real time.
1: You did great. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you all for listening to TV's top five, the Hollywood Reporters TV podcast. You can be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little review thing. It does help spread the word of mouth. We're always happy to hear from you guys on Twitter. Let us know what's working, what isn't. And if you have questions for future mailbag segments, you can email us at... TV's Top 5 at THR.com. That's TV's Top 5, the numeral 5 at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie.
0: Until next week, Dan.
1: So this is Vin Scully
3: wishing you a very pleasant good afternoon wherever you may be.